0: I was reading a book, um, and you may want to pick it up. It's a small little book, but if you're interested, it's called The Trellis and the Vine. Has anybody heard of The Trellis and the Vine? Okay, me. I've heard of The Trellis and the Vine. Um, basically, the premise of the book is creating a culture of relationships where the metaphor they use is that in every conversation we have, we help that person take what he calls one step to the right, meaning wherever you're at on the spectrum of your walk with Jesus, whether you're an unbeliever and you're not a Christian yet or you're a new believer or you've been in 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is, in all of our conversations, whether we're talking about politics, family, work, whatever it is, we're thinking to ourselves, how can I help this dear brother, this dear sister just take one step to the right? In other words, moving into the presence of God more. Um, We'll talk about this more as the year goes on, but a Christian idea of anthropology, of what it means to be human, is that we were made in the image of God. We were made for fellowship with God. What that, there's a lot of what that means, but I'll give you the two basics of what it means. It means we were made for communion with God and communion for each other. We were meant to be oriented and centered on God and oriented and centered on our neighbor, on on each other. That's what it means to be, that's what it means to be human. That's what that means, and other things. But those are the two really big things. Um, but when we fell into sin, the image of God was not lost, but it was what I like to say is all but lost, It was so badly damaged that we can no longer function in that way. Our relationship with God has been distorted and thrown off, and that, because of that, our relationship with other people has also been distorted, and and, and that accounts, in the Christian mind, that accounts for all the problems that we see in the world, whether it comes to abuse or war or even disease, it comes from that breakdown of humanity. We've, in a sense... We've lost some of our humanity, but when Jesus comes into a human life, here's what we need to understand. When Jesus has come into your life, if you're a Christian, he has put, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit puts a new man within you. Like a baby being born, a new life, a new man. And here's the the thing with this, the new man is new, but listen, not complete. The new man, the Bible says, is, is progressively growing by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate exemplar of the image of God. It's not Adam, it's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to be made in the image, in the image of God, imaging God. That's what Jesus means. So we are growing, and the Bible says this new man is being renewed in the knowledge of him who created him. So we are all taking every, so in other words, the new person within you is not static, but is dynamic. New but not complete yet. You are growing by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and as you cooperate with him, The more you and I obey him, the more that new man grows into the knowledge of Christ. If you want a trajectory for not just 2022, but Christianity, what our goal is, is to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that won't find its completion until heaven. The next life, we will be so completely into, it will be even, more advanced in that way than Adam himself. Adam, as Calvin put it, Adam was in a state where he was able not to sin. He didn't have to sin. But when we're in heaven, when we are glorified in the image of Christ, we we will not be able to sin. It won't even be a possibility for us. Isn't that amazing? We'll be so conformed to the image of Christ. That's where we're headed. So we are, as Christians, we're going someplace And we get to help each other through community, through relationships. If we all, can you imagine the culture that this church would have if we all, and the outreach, the evangelism that our church would have, the impact on our community that this church would have, if in every conversation we just were thinking, how do I help this person take one step closer to the right, move further into the image of Christ? And what if they were thinking that about you? And conversations were happening, like we would begin to grow, do you see? As we would begin to cooperate and obey and, and follow God's leading, we would all begin to grow together in those relationships. But that takes a little bit of structure and a little bit of organization, so we're trying to think of ways that we can facilitate relationships. You have to be together in order to have these kinds of vibrant relationships. And see, you could be talking about everyday things, but in the back of your mind, it's an everyday thing with intention. I'm gonna talk about politics for the purpose of helping this person take one step to the right. I'm gonna talk about my job for the purpose of helping this person take one step to the right. It's all right there, and we're all encouraging each other to grow more and more into the image of God on this journey that we're on. There it is, Vision 2022. So, um, if you want to get more into it, like I said, if you've got time to read it, The Trellis and the Vine, it's a, it's a, it's a little thin book. It's a little read, but it's great. Uh, I think it's like 100 pages, if that. It might be 70 pages. But it's a great little read. If you want to get more into that and get into that mindset, pick it up. It's, it's a biblical exposition. It's a biblical theology of how this works. So it's not just someone's idea. It's they're showing it in Scripture so that you can know it's biblically based. It's scriptural. This is how the Christian community acts and lives and works. Okay? Um, so, Happy New Year. Turn to Genesis 32. And we're going to be in verses 22 through 32. 22 through 32. Let me pray. Lord, I am grateful to be here. I feel that it is an act of your mercy and your grace that we can be together and that I can be here and that we can be looking into some of the most mysterious, beautiful, incredible things. Into the preciousness of your word. I I believe, Jesus, I do. I have faith to believe that this Bible, that this scripture is living and active, that it is human. (laughs) It's Jesus is the word, and that you're going to have a conversation with us today. I pray that you would give us hearts to believe it. We're not just learning some information, but we're having a conversation with a, with a real person. Encounter us, wrestle with us today. Start with me, in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Genesis 32, pick it up in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions, all of his stuff. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you, need, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Okay. What a famous story. What a fascinating story. Um, And one that I can just say off the top, if, if anything, we can observe that the Bible, let it be known from the outset of this, the Bible is not primarily about belief, although that is important, but it's not the primary thing. The Bible is not primarily about belief, but about an encounter. Christianity is not primarily about a belief. It's about having an encounter with someone, an encounter. And this story documents probably one of the most famous encounters in all of biblical history. Jacob wrestles with this stranger. And um, I need to note, we need to back up a little bit and, and note that all of Jacob's life has been a wrestling match. If you know anything about the life of Jacob, if you've read the life of Jacob, if you spent time with the life of Jacob, you know that literally from the very beginning, in in fact, in the womb, um, in their mother's womb, Jacob, who had a twin brother named Esau, They were in the womb and they were fighting together. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. There's this struggle going on from the beginning. And really, Jacob's entire life is framed in the Bible by this strife. He's not a peaceful man. (laughs) He's contentious. He's not comfortable. He's conniving. He's striving. He's wrestling. His life really is marked by this idea of wrestle, strive, trying to beat, get on top, that type of a thing. Um, When they grew, as they grew up, Jacob struggled and contended and fought with Esau for the favor and love of their father, for Isaac's affection, for the the honor and leadership of their family, who was going to lead the family, who was going to be on top, their father Isaac, Constantly favored Esau over Jacob. And I'll tell you, there, there are few things more wounding to a son than that, than favoritism in, in, injected into the family. I, Isaac did that, and Jacob, ironically, would go on to do that in his own, with his own children and poison the family system in that way. Finally, the day came that Isaac, the, the, their father, was to give Esau the ritual blessing of the family that went with Esau's birthright, which included the lion's share of the family estate. Esau was to get the lion's share of the family estate, the blessing of his father. Jacob, however, disguised himself as Esau. Maybe you know the story. Jacob disguised himself with Esau. Isaac was going blind. Esau was a very hairy man, and so Jacob... (laughs) used animal hair to put onto his body and to to paste it onto his body so that when his father touched his son, he thought it was Esau rather than Jacob. He fooled him just long enough for Isaac to pronounce this blessing on Jacob instead of Esau, and then Jacob ran. He ran for his life. When Esau discovered what had happened, he vowed to kill Jacob. there's problems in the family and he wasn't kidding he vowed to kill his own brother when he heard what had happened so jacob fled for his life into exile um, which led him to his mother's brother his uncle laban who had two daughters one named rachel and one named leah you guys remember you guys remember you're tracking with me for those of you that know how this this goes down Uh, But before we go further into that, we need to to ask this important question why? Why was it so important for Jacob to steal Esau's blessing? This is um, confusing to us modern folks because we think surely Jacob knew that his crime would be revealed, that Isaac would never actually give the majority of the family's wealth to him because of a stunt or because of a prank. So why go through all of this? Why go through it all? All Jacob got was this ceremonial affirmation. That's really all he got out of it was the blessing from his father verbally. Why did he lose so much? Exile and lost his family. Why did he lose so much for so little gain? That's what we typically think. We think it's all about wealth. It's all about property. It's all about all of those things. But I think it's much more than that. I think it was because Jacob even under false pretenses, longed to hear his father say, I delight in you more than anyone else in the entire world. You are special. You belong to me. I think he longed for it. And here, the Bible teaches us something mysterious mysterious and built into the heart of every creature, especially human beings. Every human being Here's something to learn about your heart and your mind, and you and the world around us. All of if if we can understand this principle, you will understand all of social history up to this point. You'll understand what's going on in the world. You'll understand it from a biblical perspective, and that is the Bible says that every human being needs blessing, needs it. According to the Bible. Human beings were forged in the fires of God's blessing. It's the makeup of your essence. Your DNA cries out for it because it's how you were made. Let me read it to you in Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 26 through 28. Listen to this. This is the account of our creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Um, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and over all wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and here it is verse 28 and God blessed them he blessed them from the womb we are looking for for blessing. We're looking for someone to confer a blessing, meaning, purpose, import into our soul, to notice. We're we're looking for it, we're craving for it, we're striving to get it. You could use use the metaphor of the text, we're wrestling in all of our doings and all of our striving to be blessed. It's the meaning behind everything else. I want that promotion. Why? Because I will feel chosen, blessed, recognized, noticed, seen. I want this achievement for all of those reasons. I want her to notice me. I want him to see me because I want someone to say, you are blessed, you're noticed, you belong here, I want you. We're all looking for a blessing. It's built in, you can't get away from it. In fact, it was this need for blessing that ran Jacob's life. It explains all of his striving and all of his consternation that was going on in his soul. He was a restless person. He was restless inside. It was the cause for the striving, the conniving, the wrestling. And the relationship within his own family was now being torn apart because of this inner struggle for blessing. Your parents, to help help to understand your kids, they're longing for blessing. A verbal blessing, all blessings in the Bible are verbal, by the way, we'll get into that in a second. And they usually consist of a few things. It's verbal affirmation, I see you, I notice you. It's physical touch, it's a gentle touch. And it's a projection in the future. And that, so it would look good like, hey, noble, you're really good at that. Have you thought that maybe in the future you could? See what it is, a blessing. It's I notice you and you have purpose. You could do this. You could do, it's giving direction, uh, vision, um, a, a place to go. We've lost that in our culture, but it's what, it's how we were built. So because of Esau's hatred for Jacob, um, he was forced to flee to a far country, and despite many more struggles and wrestling and conniving and all of these things, I know the glory of God is like coming right there, Um, it's because you're blessed. the relationship with his own family, and because even though he, had all, he still had struggles, he still was wrestling, conniving, Jacob begins to prosper there. Um, he marries, as the story goes, he marries both Rachel and Leah. He didn't know he was getting the two-for-one deal, but he did, because his uncle Laban was also a conniver and a wrestler and a, a, a manipulative person. So he ends up with two wives two of their servants and the 12 tribes of Israel, the the 12 sons of Jacob came out of a relationship between Jacob and four women. That's the family, the broken family that God chose to use to bring salvation to the world where Jesus would come from that. But his uncle Laban and his cousins, they began getting resentful and jealous of Jacob. He was starting to prosper, his flocks, his he was becoming a very wealthy man he was amassing more territory more things because they just he just needed more land to house all of his stuff and in that ancient culture the more things you had the more space you took up the more wealthy you were considered the more blessed you were considered from the outside so it became obvious to a certain at a certain point that Jacob needed to leave There just wasn't enough space for him and for Uncle Laban. It was time to go. So, but he did it in a very manipulative way. He fled. He left fast. He told Laban under false pretenses that he was doing something else and he gathers all of his troop and he he leaves. He decides to run home to his own native land with his now extremely large family, two wives, 11 sons, all their servants, flocks and herds. So this big caravan of people but the plot thickens when the, when, when the narrator of the story in Genesis 31 reveals that Rachel had stolen her father, her father Laban's household gods as she was leaving. So he had these little statues and these idols that he was worshiping and she stole them. And when Laban realized that they were gone, he took off after Jacob to get his gods back. Why did she do that? Well, it was kind of like an insurance policy. If the Lord God failed her, if Jacob's God failed her, she could always go back to the gods of her parents for help. That's the idea. But that's not how obviously not how our God works. He's not just one more recourse for us to use to help us achieve our agenda. He's a whole new agenda. But Rachel hadn't learned this yet. So my point by bringing this up is that the family that God is going to use to bring salvation to the world is deeply, 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 deeply flawed. That's a part of the story that must be mentioned. God chooses beautiful yet broken people. So Jacob set out for his homeland with his entire family and his estate in tow. And as he drew near, to receive, he received some alarming news. Remember, the last time he saw Esau, his brother, um, Esau had vowed to kill him. His brother Esau had learned about Jacob's homecoming and so Esau goes out to meet Jacob with a posse, with 400 men. The last time, like we said, Jacob had seen his brother, he had robbed him of his father's blessing and Esau was out to kill him. What else could this mean in Jacob's mind? Esau's coming with 400 guys. He's he's gonna kill me. He's going to murder him. Why else would Esau be coming out to meet me like that? So Jacob starts to panic. First, he prays for help. Then he sends out, he starts to connive. He starts to figure it out. He starts to, he's doing his thing since he's been doing it from the beginning. And here it is, Jacob and Esau still wrestling, still going at it. And Jacob starts to try to outmaneuver and outthink and play kind of a mental chess game in his, in his mind. He begins to take all of these, these things. First, he sends out this enormous gift of livestock out ahead of his brother. Like, in other words, I like, come in peace, and he dumps wealth on his brother, just pay, tries to pay him off and pay off his anger, pay off the revenge. After that, he divides his, his family into, in half, into two, into two companies, thinking that if Esau attacks the first half, well, then the second half would have time to, to run, and maybe he could still salvage his family. He's just, you can just see, he's, his mind is, he's losing sleep. He's trying to figure out that this is survival for him. He's got Laban behind him, Uncle Laban behind him, and he's got mad Esau in front of him. He's feeling trapped. Jacob's life had been one long wrestling match to get blessing. He'd wrestle with Esau to hear, to hear the blessing from his father's lips. He wrestled with Laban so he could find a a blessing in Rachel's arms. You know, if you know the life of Jacob, you know the infatuation he had with Rachel and with her beauty and with wanting a blessing from her. But none of this had worked. Even though on the outside, people would consider him blessed because of the wealth and the and all of that. Inside, he's still a barren soul. He's still restless. He's like somebody that we would read about a celebrity that we would assume has it all and has the world in their fingertips and yet we we read about their life falling apart or a a rehab or, God forbid, a a suicide of some sort. Just just bereft of hope, still wrestling, has it all and yet has nothing. I always think of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie where Barbossa says, "The, the food turns to ash in our mouths. The, the, the longing for comfort and the, oh, he said the, the uh, woman's flesh, the warmth of a woman is just cold and it, they, they have no soul. We can't, it's right here. The blessings are right here, but we can't enjoy it. It doesn't, it's not uh, transferring into a, a deposit into our soul, it's missing. That's Jacob. None of it had worked. He's still empty inside and now Esau, he's on his way the man who kept his father's love from him, from his inheritance, from his destiny, from happiness, seemingly to him, and he was coming with an army. Basically, tomorrow is the last battle. That's what he's thinking. This is it. It's going down here. Showdown at the O.K. Corral. Noon. Here we go. This is it. Well... After all the preparations have been made, both halves of the company have been sent on ahead. Jacob finally is alone and there's nothing left to do. He's by himself. Think of Jacob. He's the leader of this huge company. And finally, he sends him out and he's just, this, you can imagine the contrast, can't you? Maybe some of you after Christmas, the family, the, the lights, all and finally, shh, loneliness. Everyone leaves, everyone goes home and there's just you and yourself It's not surprising that Jacob wanted to spend the night alone to prepare his mind for the next day. But that night, deep in the darkness, he was unexpectedly attacked by a lone figure, by a stranger, and they wrestled. They fought for hours. Look at verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It just went on and on. Jacob just wouldn't give up. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, meaning that Jacob's just not going to give up, that's what it meant, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was, this word, it's just as violent in Hebrew, turns out, as it is here in in English, wrenched. His hip wrenched as he was wrestling with the man. Who is this mysterious person? Um, Well, I'm sure that you guys all know who it is, but you need to understand the narrator, you need to look and see that the narrator deliberately obscures his identity from the reader. But he leaves a few clues. He doesn't just flat out say, but he leaves a few clues. First, there was this powerful touch. Touch in verse 25. Um, In the Hebrew, it's the word nagah, and it, it has a big range of meaning of what that, of what that could mean. But one of the most um, frequent translations for this verb, naga is it frequently meant to, here it is, quote, extend authority over someone or something by claiming one's own, by claiming as one's own, by inflicting a blow upon someone, a violent blow. In other words, your mind. There's a transfer of authority. There's a claiming of his own. There's, there's, uh, and that's confirmed in the context of the story. This person is saying, "You belong to me." The same word is used to, decry- de- to describe something that is holy in the temple, dedicated to the Lord, in which a common person, other than a priest, is not to touch. Same word, Naga. Don't touch that because it's dedicated to me. In other words, I've already touched it, claimed it as mine. It's mine, so therefore it's exclusive to the Lord. No one else should touch it or use it for a common thing. Speaking of the utensils and the things in the temple that was used solely for the purpose of worship in the temple, that's what's going on right here. This person is touching Jacob and saying, You're mine. And I'm going to mark you with a wound. You'll know your mind by how you limp for the rest of your life. That means you're holy. Let your mind play with that for a while. I was tempted just to go off about that, but I'm, I felt that I should go in a different direction. Um, also, the figure insisted that he leave as dawn neared. Why? Well, Jacob knew, surely knew, that no one could look at God's face and live. Later, Jacob realized that it was was for Jacob's own protection that he left because he said, later in the story, I saw the face of God and I lived to tell the tale. I lived. That's why he was trying to leave. The same, it reminds us of Moses' experience, who I believe is penning the book of Genesis. Moses longed to see the face of the Lord. You remember that? And God said, you don't even know what you're asking for. You see me, you're, you're, you're done. You're, you know... You, I'm so holy, I'm so pure, I disintegrate anything impure in my, in my presence. You can't, only someone who is holy, only someone who is dedicated, only someone who is set apart, holy, can come before my presence. This is God making Jacob Holy. This probably means that in the the first grayness of the dawn he was able to just barely make out the lines of the face of this divine wrestler just before he vanished from sight maybe if he had seen the face of God in clear daylight maybe he wouldn't this story would end very differently and then Jacob died next chapter (laughs) you know maybe that's how it would go Jacob realized that he was wrestling with God. He was wrestling with God himself. And here's what I would like to say. I think Jacob realized that he's always been wrestling with God. In all of his endeavors, wanting a blessing, God was the touch that he'd been looking for in Rachel's arms. God was the blessing that he had longed for from the lips of his father. God was the sense of fulfillment that he wanted from all of his wealth and all of his things. It had all come to there. Jacob realized, and when he realized this and saw the sun coming up, here's the astounding part. Jacob did something really astonishing here that maybe you didn't notice. He didn't do the rational thing, which would have been to scream once he realized that it's God, let me go, don't kill me. Right? Run away. Run away shield himself, let me go, don't kill me. But instead, this is what makes Jacob so great in this moment, Jacob does the opposite. He held on tighter. He pushed in to this powerful wrestler, this divine being, he grabbed on tighter and he said, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. In other words, I get it now that you're what I want. You're what I've been wanting the whole time. And I'd rather you kill me and for me to walk away from this without being blessed by you. Bless me. I will not let go of you. Bless me. <laughs> and Jacob, Jacob was saying something like this. I took time to write out what I thought maybe he was saying. This is what I think he was saying, basically. What an idiot I've been. Here's what I've been looking for all my life. The blessing of God. I looked for it in the approval of my father. I looked for it in the beauty of Rachel, but it was in you. Now I won't let you go until you bless me. Nothing else matters. I don't even care if I die in the process because if I don't have God's blessing, I have nothing. Nothing else will do. Nothing. And as a result, we read that God blessed him there. <sighs> Do you feel are you feeling a longing in your own soul for this? I hope you are. I'm sure you are. It's, it's a pitchfork going from the ancient scripture to us. Blessing. I need this. This is what I want. This is it. Jacob was saying, um, well, as a result, God blessed him there. And, and here, we know in the Bible, everywhere we see in the Bible. Um, Blessing, like I said, is always verbal. God must have spoken something into the heart of Jacob in that moment. What what it was, we don't don't know. Um, We don't know the exact words, but there is nothing greater than the blessing of God. And Jacob walked away as the very picture of one who has believed the gospel because he was permanently lamed. and, And... He was permanently lamed. This is such a picture of Christianity. He was permanently lamed and permanently fulfilled at the same time. He had been humbled yet emboldened at the same time. Everything changed and yet nothing changed at the same time. Isn't that such a picture of your… Can you look inward and can you see both beauty and brokenness, both fulfillment and and still a longing, still a hunger. So Jacob won. God said, you have struggled with God and you've overcome. He was victorious. And um, I think even the people, I, the, the people that I know that are the most joyous for God, the people that rejoice the most that I know with God are those that also limp, limp, limp. I've noticed in my, in my life and in people that I admire, people that are close to God, they're still limping, and yet they're rejoicing also. <clears throat> he was victorious because once he realized the divinity of this mysterious wrestler, he didn't flee, but he held on, so he realized this is what he wanted. This, so I started this sermon out by saying this. The Bible is not, about, not primarily about belief, but about what? an encounter with a person. The most powerful divine wrestler in the universe. And I want, to, I want to suggest to you that you and I, like Jacob, have been wrestling for blessing in all of our endeavors. It's what gets us up in the morning. And at some point, if you're a Christian, or if you're wanting to be a Christian, at some point, you have had or will have an encounter, not with a belief system, not not necessarily with a philosophy. Look, Christianity has a philosophy. It has a belief system. It has a psychology, but it's not a philosophy. It's not a belief system. It's not a psychology, primarily. Primarily, it's an encounter with with a being, with being himself. At some point, If you're a Christian, you had a moment, a reckoning with this person. And as terrifying as he is, as he was, you also realize he's exactly what I need. He's what I'm long, he's what I was built for. I was forged in the fires of this being. Therefore, I'm not gonna run, I'm gonna cling on, even if it costs me everything. It's the story of the cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die. (laughs) That's Christianity. The wondrous cross, this beautiful thing, the cross, it bids me to come and die to find that I may truly live. This is what I need. This is what I want. And every Christian has this encounter. Every Christian has this encounter or keeps having this encounter And because of that, some of us limp more than others. The reader of the life of Jacob might be perplexed at this point because in no episode throughout the life of Jacob has he emerged the hero. (laughs) If you've studied the life of Jacob, he's he's not some moral paragon, you know? He's a bad guy. My professor at school says he names a, a, a character in the Bible almost every time and he goes, Good guy or bad guy? <laughs> he, he goes, Isaiah, good guy or bad guy? He goes, Bad guy. Look at the text. Isaiah said himself, Woe is to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He admits it. He's a bad guy. Jacob, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy bad guy he didn't seem to deserve to deserve any blessing he can he he continually acts foolishly deviously and even in vicious ways jacob's a guy that you can't trust if you met jacob if he came to our church he'd be a guy that you were kind of leery of he always has an angle he's plotting something else you have this suspicion that he maybe doesn't trust you so he's got the strike first mentality and you'd be right And yet, he didn't deserve, if God is holy and just, why is he so gracious to someone like Jacob? If you're a thinking person, you've got to ask that. If God is holy and just, why pay attention to a guy like Jacob? Out of all people on the planet for him to single out on and for the Messiah to come through his line, why would he pick Jacob, a guy that's sleeping with four women, to get 12 sons? Why would you, why? Why Jacob? Why would God come down, feign weakness to keep from killing him and then give him clues as to who he is and then bless him for no other reason uh, that he just held on desperately? And the answer to the question comes later in the Bible, much later in the Bible, when the Lord again, God again, appears as a man. In the darkness with Jacob, God feigned weakness in order to save Jacob's life. But in the darkness of Calvary on the cross, the Lord appeared as a man and truly became weak to save us. The the idea is this. Jesus came and took the curse that Jacob deserved. Took the curse that, let me put it this way, He took the curse that Jacob was feeling even in the womb. I'm the underdog. I'll never get up. Life will always beat me. I'm gonna strive and win. What are we fighting against? When we're fighting blessing, striving for blessing assumes a striving against the opposite force, which is what? A curse. Have you ever had a day where nothing seems to go right? You can't, get, you can't get up in time, get, there's, you forgot to get, there's no food in the fridge, you're running late to work, traffic's bad, people are extra mean, something else happens and at some point you just go, "Geez, I'm cursed. Like what's the, the luck of the draw? It's just bad, oh, it's the grind, it's always, go- we feel this sense of I'm fighting against a downward, you know, gravity. What did, uh, John Mayer wrote that song, Gravity, it's working against me. It's trying to bring me down. Gravity. At one point he says, stay the hell away from me. He's, what, what's going on? He's feeling this struggle, this, this intense, what we all feel. We all feel the curse is coming together. I'll never be ahead. I'll never be that. I'll never, I'll never, there's always someone else to beat. Uh, when I used to work in Bellevue, I, I used to work with, uh, with some of the smartest kids in the nation. I don't know if you know, but parents actually move their families and these were the kids that were coming to my youth group they would move their families into our area so that they could go to Newport that had the Newport High School that had the one of the highest GPA uh, ratings in the country and the highest SAT scores in the country so the pressure on the kids that when I grew up (laughs) getting grades was like you know as long as you pass That was my, and it was kind of the same way with all my friends, just pass. When I came to work in Bellevue, there's tremendous pressure to be not just pass, but to be the top, the top at the school so I can get onto a better school. Well, I read this interesting article by this counselor at this Ivy League school, top top notch in the country, Ivy League school, and she said, the kids that come in and, and they sit on my couch, They're devastated and they're falling apart. I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the article, but basically she was saying they're devastated and they're falling apart. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they are finding kids being smarter than them. For the first time in their lives, they have a B. For the first time in their lives, they're seeing people, in other words, it's taken up a notch and because their identity is so built around their schooling and who they are, top of their class, they're literally falling apart. They're having an identity crisis from the inside out. Why am I cursed? The struggle, this fight, I have to beat, it's dog eat dog, all of it and it goes on and on. We're fighting against the curse. That's what Jacob was doing. And he would manipulate and claw and scrape and step on over he had to step on to get get the blessing. Jacob held on to God in obedience. But God comes, Jesus came, and you see what he did. He took on the curse that you are feeling that you're fighting against. He you can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. From now on, work will not be blessed, it will be hard. You'll have to work for whatever you reap. From now on, you will feel like life itself is against you. That's the curse. And Jesus came, and on the cross, he took it on himself. He injected it. He drank the cup of the curse to the dregs for you and for me, so that now you can say, I am blessed. So that you can know I have the blessing of God. Now, that's the story. That's what you need. That's what I hope the Spirit is giving to you this morning for 2022. Not that you'd be blessed, but that you'd realize that you are. If you're a Christian. And here's what that does. There's a few practical things that that does. It means that no matter what, what, if you're a Christian, no matter what happens to you in 2022, there's going to be, we sang a few songs, though temptation will come my way. Promise you, 2022 has a whole mixed bag of blessings and really hard things. Though temptation will come my way, though fear may rise in trouble's day, you are mighty and strong to save when I call upon your name. In other words, for the Christian, when you, inha- when, when you encounter your struggles and you wrestle with your demons and you come across all the things that 2022 is gonna throw at us, at you individually and as a society, the Christian cannot, just logically, according to this doctrine, the, the Christian cannot think it's because I'm cursed. That's the one option that it cannot be. Do you understand that? For the Christian, when we see hardship come our way we cannot think or we can come against that thought and say no it's not that i'm cursed because jesus took the full blown brunt of the curse for me in its totality on the cross are you hearing it am i doing it again thank you it's not because i'm cursed it's just phlegm Uh, christians can say okay it can't be because i'm cursed It can't be that someone's out to get me. It can't be that that God's out to destroy me. It can't be those things because Jesus took it in totality. What did Jesus say on the cross? He said, it is finished. He's not on the cross. He did not say, to be continued. He didn't do that. He said, it's finished, it's done. I've taken it all upon myself. So now, when things come our way, and they will, from stubbing your toe to another variant of, of whatever it is, we can say, I'm not cursed. In fact, God has a way of turning the curse against itself, what we talked about Christmas time, his judo move against sin, he turns the curse into a blessing. We can say, this is an opportunity for me to grow. God's doing something in me through this. God is taking this new man in me and he's moving me one step to the right through the hardship, through the pain. When you look inwardly and you see the brokenness that's still there, remember, Jacob, when he met Jesus, when he met God on that fateful night, he was not fixed in a sense. He was in another sense, but he also limped for the rest of his life. I I would say to you he needed that limp To close, well, I have a few things left to say, and then we're done. Um, The Apostle Paul said something really interesting in the book of Philippians. He was talking about his imprisonment, and he said, look, I don't want any of you guys to be sad for me that I'm in prison and that I'm facing death. I'm about to go meet Nero, and I'm hoping it goes well, but it may not but I don't want any of you to feel bad for me. And he says, because the whole palace guard is hearing the gospel because I'm in these chains. And then he says something really interesting. He said, all of these hardships are working out as God's salvation for me. And he uses this word in the Greek that has the idea of alchemy. Do you guys know what what an alchemist is? It's a mythical person. In In medieval times, they believed that there was a person that had the gift of alchemy that could turn seemingly worthless metal ore into a precious metal. It was a con. It was a scheme. You could bring your, your, your iron ore or whatever it is, and out would produce silver or gold or something like that. But Paul uses it and basically is saying that God is using this curse, this trouble, this tribulation in my life and he's the ultimate alchemist. He's turning it into gold for me and he says not only that, he says I need this trouble because it's saving me. Now, Paul was already saved in the eternal sense. He was a Christian in the eternal sense. He was saved. But don't you know, Christians in here, you still need to be saved from things? There's still habits, there's still behaviors, there's still ways of thinking, there's still that old, that in what 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 Paul calls in Romans chapter six, indwelling sin within you. Doesn't rule or reign in you anymore. It's powerless, but it, it's a nuisance and sometimes it get, it's an information war. It gets you to think that it's in charge. And Paul says, not only do do is this not only is this bringing about good things, I need this trouble to save me. That's the Christian view. How do you get that view? How do you go through life with that kind of buoyancy to float with whatever storm comes your way? How do we become people of greatness? I will tell you, it's from the blessing. The blessing. On that day that Jesus was baptized, Jesus comes into his, this is the final thing I'll share, Jesus comes into his public ministry, he's stepping into the public, here I am, I'm the Messiah, repent for the kingdom of God is near, and he's about for the next three years, the next three years of his life are about to be the most grueling, hard, torturous life in human history, he's about to take this on, not to mention, The sins of the world, past, present, and future, he's about to put it on his shoulders. How did he get through that three years? What does his ministry start with? He comes forth, he's baptized, and what happens? A verbal voice from the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the narrative goes on to all the trouble. In fact, right into the desert of temptation. It's, you need to understand, it's not separate episodes. They're flowing together. The writers of the gospels are saying the, the, what gave Jesus the grit to go out in that desert and handle temptation and to, to uh, come against the people that hated him and to ultimately be crucified and drink the cup of the curse to the dregs, what gave him the ability to face life in the future was the blessing that was deposited into his heart from God the Father. So he could look and he could, one thing that he could not say is I'm cursed. He said no. He told me I'm his beloved son. That's my identity in whom he greatly delights. Do you know, precious people, that that is what will get us through the future? That deposit through the cross, cuz he took your curse. And he gives you that blessing so that way the same words can come to your heart this morning. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. The blessing that you've been looking for, striving for, wrestling for is deposited in you, in your heart to give you strength to know that, well, the troubles and tribulations, the curses, they can take a lot of things from me but they can't take take him from me. They can't take the blessing. Can you believe it? Can you take it? How do we keep doing this? Well, it goes back to our vision for 2022. Each other. If I know, if I'm talking to um, anybody, and I know that you are made for a blessing, I know it. I know you are. And I'm talking to you and I know you were made for a blessing. You know what I'm gonna do? To help you take a step to the right? I'm gonna look you in the eye, somewhere in the conversation, and I'm gonna say, hey, I really admire you for this. Thanks for doing that. I'm gonna deposit, I see you and I love you. Or you confess a sin to me. Let's say you're honest and you're brave and you say, Mike, I did this thing again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat you. I'm, I'm not going to flinch. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to say he still loves you. He knows you to the bottom, and yet he loves you to the sky. He knew you were going to do that. In fact, he knows you're going to do things that you can't even imagine that you're going to do, and yet there is no condemnation in Christ. And What am I doing? I'm saying, blessing. You're still his beloved child in whom he greatly delights not because of you, but because of Jesus. I'm, you see what I'm doing? I'm depositing blessing into you. I'm imploring for you to believe it. What if we all did that to each other, if we encouraged one another all the time and we kept, we were, we kept stoking the, the coals and the fire of that blessing that we once got? You are priceless. You are precious. You are good oh, Mike, I've just had this horrible week. Yeah, oh man, it has been hard, but you know what it's not? It's not a curse. What else could it mean? Well, it means that you need it. God's doing something in you through this. He's making you better. He's making you greater. He's making you stronger. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Can you believe it? What am I inviting you to do? Take one more step, just a step to the right. So in Jesus' name, I remind you now that you are blessed in the name of Jesus. Why? Because he was cursed for you. Precious, precious people, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would allow every person here to receive that deposit into their soul, into their mind, into their heart, and give them the faith to believe it. For 2022 and our whole lives, thank you. Bring down the barriers, the doubts, the hesitations. Help us believe and rest and relax into your goodness today. In Jesus' name, amen.